0: Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. Well, this morning I'm continuing to go through the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, and we've been looking specifically at Paul's missionary journeys uh, over the last few weeks, and we're going to be in Acts 19, 21 to 41. It's a passage that has a lot to teach us about the subject of idolatry, uh, something that might f- seem like it's... Something from a long time ago, but it's very, very relevant today. So I'm going to read Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way was what they called Christianity back then. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Uh oh not working here. There we go. Sorry. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. And most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are pro councils, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear and to understand what this means to apply this to our lives today. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul and his missionary team have been sharing the gospel in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians from. And apparently they've been telling the people that uh, there's one God and all these man-made idols, these statues that they are bowing down to and worshiping are not real gods because they were created by human hands. And so Demetrius, a silversmith, calls together all these people whose business is going to be affected by this. And he says, this is not good. This, this, This message that this Paul is preaching is causing our business to drop. It's causing the economy to plummet here because nobody wants to buy and bow down to these idols anymore. And so they get the crowd in an uproar dragging some of Paul's companions along with them. And the day is saved by the city clerk, believe it or not. He's the one who stands up and says, what are you doing here? You know, you're rioting and you're going to be in trouble. They haven't done anything wrong here. They haven't done anything. If you have an issue with them, press charges. It's an interesting story, but but Paul's gospel presentation confronts the idolatry of their time. And we may be a couple thousand years later, but not much has changed. The gospel presentation still... Steps on people's toes and still confronts idols, even if it's not man made, physical, tangible idols. And I want to use this passage today to uh, demonstrate, uh, to ask four questions. The questions are this What's an idol? What are some examples of personal and cultural idols today? What do our idols do to us? And how is worshiping God different than idolatry? Those are the four questions I want to look at today. What is an idol? What are some examples of personal and cultural idols? What do our idols do to us? And how is worshiping God different than idolatry? One book that really helped me, I put it up there a second ago, is Timothy Keller's Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book on the subject of idolatry. I'm going to reference that today. Uh, so the Bible is full of idolatry, right? The Bible is full of idolatry. Every time you read through the Old Testament, you see how they judge how, whether a king was a good king or a bad king. One of, the reasons they, one of the ways they judge is how they approach the idols around them, right? The good kings are the ones who tear down the idols to all these false gods, tear down the high places. And the, the bad kings are the ones who leave them up. You know, We'll worship God, but we'll also worship all these other gods as well. <clears throat> and so you have statues to Baal, to Molech, and in this passage, Artemis, who's also known as Diana in the Roman pantheon. There's idols for gods of war and gods of love, gods of fertility, gods of the sea. And you'd sacrifice to these gods in order to win their favor. And in our culture today, we don't have as many statues like this that people bow down to, but idolatry is still very much rampant in all of our hearts. You don't need a statue to have an idol. Even the Bible knew this in uh, Ezekiel 14, 2-3, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? So even in the Old Testament we see idols are not just statues out there, they're also something that is internal. That we all have idols in our hearts. And Paul tells us in Romans that from the very beginning, this is what all people have done. They've exchanged the creator God to worship and bow down to and serve the created for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So, Paul says from the very beginning, instead of worshiping the Creator, people have turned away from Him to worship and serve created things. So, how would I define an idol? define it this way. An idol is anything that is more important to your identity and happiness than God. It's anything or anyone that you are looking to in order to give you what only God can give you, to give you significance and security. So there's a one definition of idolatry. It's not just a statue out there that people bow down to. An idol of the heart's anything that's more important to your identity and happiness than God. It's anything or anyone that you are looking to in order to give you what only God can give you to give you significance and security. Any number of things can be an idol. Everyone has different ones. It can be money, status, reputation, the approval of others, brains, beauty, love, sex, freedom, individuality, morality, politics, all kinds of things. Go on and on about examples of idolatry. But in the end... What we are doing when we have idols is we're exchanging God, the one who deserves our worship, the only one in whom has found significance and security, and looking to something that's a created being or created thing, and looking to that to give us what only God can give us. So let me just run through some examples of personal and cultural idols that I see, okay? What are some examples? Again, I could do a long list, but let me just highlight a few. How about wealth and status, Some of you, instead of looking to God for your status and significance and your security, you look to wealth. You look to status. If I only have enough money, if I only have status in the eyes of this world, then I will know I'm significant. And some of you are willing to sacrifice family to that God, sacrifice your children to that God, sacrifice your spouse to that God. Sacrifice your health to that God or your time to that God. Believing that if I only have that, then I will be significant. Then I'll know my life matters. And I'm willing to lay everything else down so that I can have that. What about beauty and appearance? For some, that is an idol. That is something that I am, again, willing to sacrifice for. If I only have that, then I'll know that I'm significant. Then I'll know that I matter. Willing to give up food, willing to go through depression, willing to go through all kinds of eating disorders, willing to go through anything in order to achieve that God, believing that that will give my life value. Image and reputation. How about that? Anyone have that as a personal idol? If I know I'm a good parent or a good spouse or a moral person, then I'll know that I'm significant. If only I have that image and people see me in a certain way, then I'll know that I have meaning in my life. And I'm going to do everything I can to control my environment and control other people and control the image I portray so that people will think that of me, so that I will know that I am valuable. What about love? What about a significant other? Plenty of people bowing down to that idol, believing that if only I have someone beautiful who thinks I am beautiful, then I will know that I am significant. And I'm willing to compromise or give up or sacrifice anything in order to have that. And if I lose that, then who am I? What about politics and politicians? How many people have elevated politics or politicians to godlike status, believing if only this party's in power, then the world will be saved and redeemed How many people are willing to overlook the sins of politicians pledging their allegiance to political parties instead of worshiping God, instead of elevating him, instead of keeping a prophetic distance so that you could speak into politics and not just be swayed by them and follow them blindly? An idol, once again, is anything that is more important to your identity and happiness than God is anything or anyone that you are looking to in order to give you what only God can give you, to give you significance and security. Trust me, if I don't offend you at some point during this sermon, I probably have not done my job because this is God stepping on your toes here, right? This is God trying to expose the things in your life that you are looking to for your significance and security. Those things that you're like, "Don't, don't go there, God. Don't you, don't you try to take that from me. Don't you try to put your finger on that one, you know? As much as you might want to feel like, boy, I hope he's listening and she's listening to this one. No, this is, this is God trying to challenge you and the idols of your heart. And the thing about those idols is that often underneath those idols, there's deeper idols. There's deeper idols like approval, You know, if only I have the approval of the crowd, then I'll know I'm valuable. Or security and control, that all these things I have because I want to make sure I can control and be secure in this world, looking to the things of this world to give you security or power and influence. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He said, people with the deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. People who are motivated by approval, on the other hand, will gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. They don't spend much and they live modestly keeping it safely invested. Others want money for access to social circles or to make themselves beautiful and attractive. And they do spend money on themselves to give them power over others. His point is that you could have an idol like money for different reasons. Some people have an idol of money because it's, they want security and control over the world. And Some people want money because it gives them access and status that there's deeper idols underneath. This is the sort of Message. This is the sort of thing that's gonna take some serious reflection on your part to really allow God to look into your heart and expose what is it that you are trusting in and looking for besides Him. What about cultural idols? You know, every culture has its idols as well. Here's some cultural idols I see that out there in America. How about the pursuit of happiness? I mean it's written into our Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this has become quite the cultural idol in America, that what matters most is my happiness. My individual happiness. And I get to determine what that is. And nobody can say otherwise. I get to choose who I want to be and what makes me happy. And you all need to just affirm that. That's your job. The pursuit of happiness. That's what matters more than anything else to feel good about myself? What about freedom? Again, very American cultural value, cultural idol. Freedom, no one can tell me what to do. I get to choose for myself what I do, who I am. All these cultural restraints out there, all these authority figures, we got to cast them off and follow our hearts. And that's where happiness is going to be found. And I will sacrifice anything to have my freedom. How about materialism? How much money can I make? How many people going to decide what major they're going to major in in college are thinking first and foremost, what's going to give me the most money? Or as a company, how much profit can we make? And ethical issues are secondary. And helping others is secondary. And elevating others is secondary. What matters most is how much money can I make? How much money can our company make? That's what matters most in life. That's what's going to give us significance and status. What about fame? More and more with the internet. More and more with YouTube. More and more. If I can just have people following me, glorifying me, elevating me, then I'll know my life is meaningful. Then I'll be happy if I can just get famous. What about progress? The belief that whatever achievements we're making and whatever direction we're going is better than the past. How, whatever way society's going, it's just the myth of progress. Where we're going is better than where we came from. Even elevating things like the love of country can turn into Racism. The love of people groups can turn into looking down on others. Even the love of something like equality can become an idol. See that all around us today. If you elevate equality, <laughs> you wind up looking down and hating anyone who's privileged, right? Anyone who's born with privilege all of a sudden gets hated because we want equality. Anything that is elevated above God leads to disaster, disaster whether it's a personal or a cultural idol. So that's what idols are. Those are some examples. So what do idols do to us? What do our idols do to us? Let me just share three things, I think. First of all, they have a hold on our emotions. If you have an idol, something that you are looking to, besides God, for your security and significance, it has a hold. You are a slave to it. Your emotions are a slave to that fills you with fear, fear that that idol will be taken away from you, anger when it's threatened, guilt, disillusionment if you don't get it or if it lets you down, despair if it's lost. A lot of your most powerful emotions, if you trace it back, you'll trace it back to an idol. If you ever have an uncontrollable anxiety and fear or uncontrollable rage and anger, or depression and despair, like deep despair or disillusionment, if you trace it back, often you'll find that the root of it is that you've been putting your hope in something other than God. Look at what happens when when the idols are threatened in Ephesus. What happens when Demetrius says, listen, they're threatening our idols here. We're about to lose our economic well-being here. They riot. They lose their minds because their idols have been threatened. And we do the same whether or not you want to believe it or admit it. If your idol is your reputation as a parent, then what happens when your children are not doing well? If your idol is a romantic partner, what happens when they don't love you or they reject you? If your idol is security and comfort, what happens when your job is threatened or you lose your job? You know, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and one of the things we always talk about is marriage expectations. I have people take this, like, test that gives me all kinds of feedback on them. One of the categories is marital expectations. The reason is, of course, that a lot of people have very unrealistic expectations about marriage. They come in with questions, they answer questions, you know, some of the questions are, nothing will ever cause me to question my love for my partner. I do not expect our love will ever fade Questions like that. And if people answer like five out of, you know, one one to five, they answer five like, absolutely. Our love will never fade. Nothing will ever cause me to question. I'm never going to find myself attracted to another person after marriage. Then that's a warning sign that we need to address. Because elevating any human being to that status sets you up for disillusionment. And you wind up with people who, seven years into marriage, are saying, I must have married the wrong person because I no longer love them. Because the feelings are no longer there the way they were in the beginning. Marriage therapist Esther Perel put it this way. She said, if I can get this to work, can you guys just advance the slide for me, please? She says, We come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide give me belonging, give me identity, give me community but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge. Give me novelty, give me familiarity. Give me predictability, give me surprise. No wonder so many marriages end up either in disillusionment or in divorce. But it certainly can be the same in many other respects. Anyone ever elevate a pastor or a church only to find out that they're much more human, much more flawed, than you had hoped when you peek behind the curtain. Idolatry, idolizing anything or anyone leads to disillusionment. Even achieving your dreams sometimes can be terrible for people, right? Because they achieve their dreams and they realize it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, that everything they had said, if I only achieve that, then I will find happiness. And then they get there and they're not happy and they become miserable. It's a reason that so many celebrities are not like the happiest people in the world. Because they achieved their dreams and they find that it wasn't enough. It didn't fulfill them the way it was promised. In uh, Tim Keller's book, he quotes from Alexis de Tocqueville, who, if you remember U.S. history class, maybe you read Democracy in America or saw it referenced, and as he looked from afar at America, he said, a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was illusory because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. He was coming from another country looking at the American experiment saying, they think that because they're prosperous, they'll be happy, but then they find that it never brings happiness. So our idols have a powerful hold on our emotions. If you look at where do you have the deepest fears and the deepest despair and the deepest anger, if you trace it back, often it's because you have put your hope in something other than God. It also has a hold over our minds. If you stop and think about it, where does your mind... Naturally wander when there's nothing going on. What are the things you find yourself thinking about and daydreaming about? Is it career advancement? Is it relationship with a particular person? Is it the fears and anxieties you have? Where do your thoughts naturally go? Again, trace that and you'll probably find an idol, something that you are really putting your hope in, hoping that it will give you the hope, the satisfaction and the significance you're longing for. And it has a hold over our money and time. Our idols often have a hold over our money and time as well. Jesus put it this way in Matthew six twenty one: where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, he said, just trace the bank account, right? Trace where your money goes. What are you spending money on? What does it go flow to most naturally, most freely? There's probably an idol at the end of that. Something that you are easily giving your money to if it's apart from God. So let me just share from this author and counselor, David Pollison, he said, Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? Answer those questions, and you're going to find your idols, those things, those people that you are trusting in and looking to for your significance and security other than God. So God, of course, tells us this in the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Right off the bat, he says, that's number one, number two here. No other gods before me, no idols. Do not bow down to anything other than me. Is that because God is, you know, possessive and mean? No, it's because he knows if you give your heart to anything in this world, it will crush you. It will let you down. It was not meant to carry your hopes and dreams and significance. And so he says, for your sake, it's not that he needs it, that he's some needy God. It's because he knows that unless you put your heart in his hands, unless you give your heart to him, you are gonna be let down and hurt and cause all kinds of chaos in this world. Worship him alone. No other idols. So how is worshiping God different than idolatry? Three things. First of all, he will fulfill all your desires eternally. No person is gonna do that. No career is going to do that. No amount of money will do that. No political cause or politician. Nobody else is going to fulfill all your desires eternally but God. Amen? Do you believe that? That is why it is the safest place to put your heart and your hope is in Him. Your desire for beauty. It's not going to be found in this world as you age, it's not going to be found that desire that someone beautiful would find you beautiful. It's found in Him that the one who is beautiful above all things finds you beautiful. Your desire for significance is found in him. Your desire for security is found in him and him alone for all eternity. Your desire, desire for glory and approval is found in him that you will share in his glory forever. Your desire for intimacy, for ecstasy, for family, for meaningful work, everything, if you trace it, it is all found in him forever. He is the answer for every longing of your heart. And so for all of us who are looking to things of this world and people of this world to fulfill those things, this morning I'm asking you to lay down those idols and to put your heart where it belongs, put your hope where it belongs in God. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they ever quite—they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are, no, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning, can really satisfy. I am not speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That is what your heart needs more than anything else, is not to chase after the things and people of this world, but to know that God loves you that God delights in you, that he gave his son to die for you while you were his enemy, when you did not deserve it, that that is the depth of his love for you, that no one can ever take you away from him, that he will be with you forever, that all the love and the joy and the peace and everything your heart has desired is yours for eternity, and that your heart can rest secure and in peace because he is sovereign and he loves you and he is working all things together for good. He'll provide everything you need. How is worshiping God different than idolatry? Every idol will let you down. Every person will let you down. Everything in this world will let you down, but God will fulfill all of your desires eternally. Secondly, if I can get to number two on this, Can you guys just move it to number two? Thank you. Number two, he will confront your personal and cultural idols. Again, if you're tos up and stepped on at all, then I'm not doing my job because this is what God does. He is the true God. And if he's the true God, that means he's going to offend every person and every culture at some point, right? If he is the God who is true for the whole world and every human being for all history, then he's going to offend people at some point. Remember what Demetrius said? He said, Paul is telling people that man-made gods are no gods at all. Man-made gods are no gods at all. Gods of your own creation are not actually gods. They're just your own creation. If your God that you believe in lines up with you on everything you believe and doesn't challenge and confront you anywhere, it's probably a God of your own creation. It's probably an idol, right? If If God's agenda lines up perfectly with the democratic platform or the republican platform, you've probably created a God in your own image. God is greater than us. God confronts every human being in every culture at some point. And so everyone out there who's like, well, I like this about the Bible, but I don't like this about the Bible. And I believe this about God, but I don't believe this about God. They're just creating their own God in their own image and as Paul said, man-made gods are no gods at all. It's just an idol that you've created. If you come to the Bible and you find things that you read, and you're like, ooh, I don't like that. Ooh, that really challenged me. Ooh, I, ugh. You know, maybe it's because God is God, and we are not like him. And there are ways that he is that are not like our cultural ways. And if he confronts what our culture teaches about freedom or about happiness, or about materialism, it's not because God is wrong or God needs to be jettisoned. It's because our culture is wrong. Our culture has idols that we have placed above God that we are worshiping and bowing down to. And if God comes and challenges those things, we would do well to consider that, that maybe we have put our hope in an idol. We're worshiping a God of our own making. third thing, third way that worshiping God is different than idolatry is this. A community that worships God supremely would be like heaven on earth. It's a strong statement, I know, but look at what happens in Ephesus. As the Christians, as people become believers, they stop worshiping idols and now all of a sudden it's changed the economy and it's changed the culture there. It's changing the culture and it's having an impact and people are not happy about it if we truly laid down our idols, if we truly worshiped God supremely, it would change. We would have a counterculture that would be very different than American culture. I mean, it's sad when the church looks like the culture, you know that we're just, again, we're worshiping idols. If we're putting God above the values of our culture, we're going to look different. just like the economy changed, just like idolatry was on the decline? You know, what would happen if people became believers and started to truly put God first? Would not the bars and strip clubs start to close down, perhaps, as fewer people frequented things like that? Maybe fewer children would be born out of wedlock or aborted because we wouldn't be living to gratify our own sexual desires. Instead, we would treat each other with dignity, Maybe more money would be going to people in need and we'd be keeping less money for ourselves. Maybe our homes would be open up more and more to people who have no homes, to children in need of homes. We'd be finding our joy in serving others, not looking for our own personal happiness and fulfillment every second of every day, but looking to elevate others above ourselves. We wouldn't sacrifice our families on the altar of success or status or money. We would, instead of seeking power, we would seek to share power with those who do not have power to give influence to those who do not have influence. What would happen if we truly did smash our idols and elevate God supremely? What would our culture look like? It would really offend a lot of people probably the way Paul offended people, but we would create a counterculture that would be so different in how we value things like power and money and sex, and relationships. So let me leave you with Colossians 3, 1 through 5, this passage where Paul encourages us with this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I mentioned in the beginning how in the old testament they would often evaluate kings based on how they what they did about the idols in their midst. And if you've listened to the Bible recap with Terry Lee Cobble, she always talks about how those high places were like the last ten percent, you know, that so many of the kings would like take care of so many things, but they left those high places where the people did idol worship. And this is kind of like that last 10% this morning, you know, that in so many ways, so many of you are following God and serving him, you know, doing your best. But if you're honest, there are those high places still that you keep, you know, there's still those places that you still, your heart still runs to, to bow down to, to worship, to serve, believing that that will give you significance. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but if I have this, then I will know that I'm significant. Then I'll know I'm secure. And this morning, I am challenging you to lay down those altars. And I'm not, that doesn't mean that you're going to go home and say, honey, we're getting a divorce because I've been idolizing you. I'm not saying that our kids, you're on your own now because, you know, I've been putting too much of my identity and who I am as a parent. So you're on your own now. Or going in on Monday and telling your boss that you quit. Like, I'm not saying that but what I am saying is that elevate God supremely and look to Him for your significance and security. Put those other things in their proper place. I want to take a minute in silence and just between you and the Lord, just let Him deal with you. Smash those high places this morning. Lord, we confess this morning that we have been trusting in idols. We have constructed idols in our hearts. We have bowed down to them. We have looked to them for our significance and security. And we confess to you that these things will never deliver on what we're looking to them to give us. And so, God, instead, we elevate you We declare that you are Lord this morning. We lay down our idols at your feet. And we declare our trust in you. You are God. There is no other. We want to worship you supremely this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship.